so I think it's hard the same way that you would look at a veterinarian and say, they charge X, I charge Y. Am I expensive or am I cheap? The answer is probably going to be, well, it depends on what you do. to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency veterinarian in Virginia. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified surgeon in Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Isaiah Douglas, who is a good friend of the Veterinary Financial Summit. He was uh, one of our important speakers last year. And we chose Isaiah because he is wicked smart, yet very humble. He has a wealth of knowledge that goes well beyond financial advice and veteran medicine. Isaiah is a certified financial planner and a partner in Vincere Wealth Management. And he is also the host of the Veterinarian Success Podcast, which Phil and I have both been interviewed for. Isaiah, welcome to the show. Great to be here. And yeah, Meredith, you've come on twice. So you are one of the, uh, I think the only one that's come on twice, but lots of good info. So let's start with a hard, sensitive question. Isaiah, how do financial advisors or financial planners get paid? A simple question, complex answer. And I'll do my best to kind of arrive at something that can help people kind of frame it. So the quick version, and we could probably spend a whole hour talking about advisor fees, and it's something that in the in the profession certainly gets discussed a lot, especially on um, thin Twitter, financial Twitter. There's a lot of people that go round and round with it. But the the kind of the key ways that, that people typically get paid, it used to be a sales business where you would sell someone something and you got a commission off of that. That's still out there. It still exists more so on the insurance side. And you'll have kind of those individuals. But I don't think, and I don't consider that financial advice. Um, they may have financial advisor on their card, but that's not really advice. It's more of like that brokerage sale type of structure. So um, if you run into someone, they may be doing that, but you know, they're financial advisor in name only, not really giving any sort of advice. Typically, the industry standard has been assets under management. So they're going to charge you a percentage of whatever the assets they manage. Um, the issue with that is a lot of times you'll have folks that maybe don't have investment assets, but still need a lot of help with other things. And how do you make that work? Um, there's a blend and I will be candid and say, Vince here, we've kind of taken the blend approach of saying, we're gonna have a flat planning fee with AUM as that makes sense. It's not a requirement, but we kind of make that part of what we do. And then there is another, well, I guess there's two other ways. Then there's kind of like a flat fee. Um, when I first started off in the, the industry on my own, I did a net worth style fee, which was just kind of taking the assets that someone has minus their liabilities and arriving at a fee based on that. There's all kinds of different complexions of uh, fees, but you can do flat fee. And then there's also hourly. There are people that work hourly. You can find those folks. Yeah. So those are kind of all the different styles. I'm happy to jump in to kind of give some examples if that's helpful, but just let me know where you want to take that conversation. Yeah. So let, let's take a, an example. Let's pretend somebody has a portfolio of 100K, uh, if you prefer to use that as the net worth, uh, you could do that too. Pick a reasonable number of, of transactions per year. How the fee structure look like in, the, in these different case scenarios? Sure. So from transactions, let me get a little clarity. Is that just like investment, like trades? Is that what? Mm -hmm. Okay. So typically you're not going to get charged on trades. And if you are, I think that's definitely a very old school model. But even those that work in any sort of either flat, a blend, or AUM specific, there's not any charge for trades. And today, 
I think even more so with all the Robinhood GameStop news, like the whole idea of free free trades has come into the news as far as what happens behind the scenes. Don't need to get into all the, the gory details there, but you know, Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, E-Trade, all those, they offer, you know, Robinhood the same thing, free trades. So there's really not a cost for trades and there should, you shouldn't be paying a cost for trades. Let's put it that way. Um, but if you have a hundred thousand dollar portfolio and you're getting charged 1%, you know, that's, that's a thousand dollars a year, right? If you have a hundred thousand dollar portfolio, thousand dollars a year. The nice thing with AUM is if you have a lower investable asset amount, it's cheaper. But the other reverse side of that is if we change that to be a million dollar portfolio, it's $10,000. I think the question should be around that is what are they doing for you? If it's just investment management is one thing, but you can talk about financial planning, you can talk about insurance, you can talk about state planning, tax, business planning, cash flow, like all those things. So I think it's hard the same way that you would look at a veterinarian and say, they charge X, I charge Y. Am I expensive or am I cheap? The answer is probably gonna be, well, it depends on what you do, right? So it's it's similar in the the way that advisors charge. I know someone that charges, I think their minimum fee is like over $10,000. He's a deal for a lot of people. And I know someone that charges three thousand dollars, and I'm like, mm, I think they're overpriced. So it's it's hard. But if you look at you know a flat fee, whether you have a hundred thousand dollars, million dollars, it's going to be the same amount. So that you know that advisor has made their fee structure to be something that's agnostic to whether they have investable assets or not. I don't love asset center management, and we do it at our firm. But the reason we do it, just to be very candid, is we do take investment management as something that's serious. And something that we feel like we can add value by walking through what we do. And my struggle with AUM is I see a lot of people that charge AUM and say, well, we really do just, you know, the investment management, we do, we do more planning work, but we just charge AUM because it's easy, right? When you charge AUM, it comes out of the account, you don't really see it. If you charge like a flat pay, planning fee and maybe it comes out of your bank account or something out of cash flow, you're going to see that more and be aware of it. So my overall encouragement is understand what you pay, what you get, and then it's easier than to understand, are you overcharged, undercharged, or is it fair? And that's kind of the way that I look at it. Perfect. And again, just to clarify, AUM stands for assets under management. In other words, if I give you 100K to manage or $100 million to manage, the fees might change. And a lot of people will have tiers where they'll lower their their AUM. Um, and, and adjust it. So I think it's just, it's important to know what it is. Industry standards, 1%. That's certainly changing. I think over time, you're seeing a lot more of planning fees and AUM together or flat fees. You got to find someone that is going to be able to provide more value than what they're charging. You just got to ask what they do, how they do it and ask them hard questions. I think that's the key and see how they answer it. If they can't give you an answer of how they get paid, then it seems a little odd. Let's go into your background a little bit. Could you tell us a bit about your journey to become a certified financial planner? Sure. So for me, I did not necessarily come from from wealth or money or anything like that. So my dad grew up in a farming family in, in rural Indiana. And so I'm doing probably the farthest thing from what most of the uh, men in that side of the family have done historically. Uh, but I, I just kind of, I came from a larger family and money was definitely not something that was talked about a lot. It was something that was certainly a struggle. So I always was interested in it just to try to set myself up for success to not have the same struggles I saw my parents go through. Not that we were as poor or as hard out as so many different people are. Like that's not me trying to make that out. But yeah, I mean, I certainly had a humble upbringing from that standpoint. And so as I went to college, it was encouraged, go to business school because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And that's just what people told me like, oh, you can do something with business, right? 
Um, so as I went through that and got an internship, I started to find myself talking more about investing at the moment. And it was just really interested in learning the dynamics around that. And more and more people kept saying, you know, if you find this as an, an interesting hobby, what about doing it for a career? At the time I was going back for my MBA at, at IU and had a professor that had conversations with, and he kind of still encouraged me to, to look at that. And I wanted to to move to the big city of Indianapolis and uh, moved to Indianapolis and was fortunate enough to have a lot of opportunities to interview and ended up landing at Merrill Lynch, which Merrill Lynch is owned by Bank of America. So it's very much that big, huge bank type of feel. Kid from rural Indiana, not the same fit. I wasn't the, you know, raised with my parents and their wealthy friends. And that was kind of typically who was hired. So I did get fortunate and had a break there. And that was something that was really helpful. I was allowed to get my CFP and study while I was there, learned a lot, saw a lot of things, was able to travel and learned a lot of things that I just didn't love about the industry and what I wanted to do different. One of the key things there was they encouraged me to, you know, figure out how to bring in clients, right? Like that's the thing. When you're a new young advisor at a firm like that, it's how are you going to bring revenue in the door? And it was either cold call, which I don't like and I'm not receptive to. I hate when people just randomly call me or won't quit calling me or build relationships. And that was initially how the whole idea of becoming something or someone that had a niche focus was I, if I'm going to build relationships, I want to build out and carve out who I am and how I can help them. And if I sit down with someone, I can explain how I can be beneficial versus just trying to be, Hey, you have money, you sold your practice. Like, Oh, you should, you should just send that over to me and I'll help you manage it. Like, no, how about we talk about, you know, all the other things that are going on versus just the, the investment piece. And yeah, that was kind of the journey. The CFP, I think, is a great designation. It allows you to get the basics, but there's so much depth within it. It's kind of like a mile wide and an inch deep to where then you can specialize and figure out what you want to do within it. I always joke and use the example. I learned about stock options when I went through it. I don't know a darn thing about stock options now. Um, good thing I have a team that have some people on it that are really good with stock options, but that's not really my strength. That's not where I've spent a lot of time learning. And there's so many different areas of financial planning that you can focus on and become more of an expert in other places that, you know, you just refer it out or find someone else that's more the expert there. So Isaiah, why did you decide to start the Veterinarian Financial Advisor Network last year? Um, I saw that there was a need for better financial advice. And as much as I might think the, the world of what I can do and think that we do a great job, like we can't serve everybody. And also I know like personalities are going to be different and what might resonate with one person might rub someone else the wrong way. I think everyone deserves options. And if you're out there and you're saying, I want to find an advisor and I want someone that's going to do the right things and has been vetted and hits some criteria that I think are important. That was the goal, right? Like let's go find good advisors that could help veterinarians who, when I was told that I wanted to focus on veterinarians was told veterinarians don't like to talk about money. They'll never be clients, all this other stuff, which is not necessarily true. And I kind of laugh and, and chuckle at that because I do think a lot of veterinarians have questions and want help. And so trying to create the network was to bring two other advisors at the moment, there's gonna be another guy that hopefully will join and hopefully we'll get more diversity too. It's just hard to find people that wanna focus and serve veterinarians that, that meet some of the criteria, which is being a certified financial planner and being fee only, which means you know whatever you charge that client is how you get paid. There's no back-end bonuses or any other weird things that are getting paid from selling products or, or, or anything like that. It's, it's a network that it was designed to just allow veterinarians to find someone that can help them and then pick the right fit from a personality and kind of what their specialization is. How do you even know when it's time to work with an advisor? I don't have like the, the golden answer that's when this happens and you know, you're at this age or this dollar amount. 
I think it just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. And for me, you think about a what an advisor should bring to the table is helping you understand and bring clarity to the situation. So if you're trying to get to, you know, point X, Y, Z, and you're here at, you know, M, let's try to figure out how do you get to that, that other stage, whether it's practice ownership, whether it's, you know, you're getting married, you're trying to buy a house. Like there's so many different areas that an advisor can help in outside of investments. And I think so many people get tied up into, well, I don't have any money yet. So I don't need an advisor. Like I'll, I'll figure it out myself. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there's a lot of veterinarians that are extremely intelligent. And I know this, that it's not a lack of knowledge or capabilities. It's interest level a lot of times. So it's like, this just isn't interesting to me. I'm a veterinarian for a reason. I, I did not want to go into finance because it just isn't interesting the same way that there's things that maybe don't interest me that I, I'm going to have someone else help me with. Right. So when I think about when's the right time, it's if you think that you have questions or you're getting too busy, sometimes it's just, you know, what is your hourly rate? What would it look like if you hired someone to help you free up your time that you could spend it on things that you love? Because I think time is the scarcest asset we have. And if you can get time back, I think that's usually a good, you know, ROI or return on investment. Um, and if they can help bring clarity and, and get you to where you want to go and have more, you know, peace, I think that's probably the the right time, but that may be 35 for one veterinarian and never for others or 65 or 55. It just, it totally depends. So I don't know if that answers the question or not, but it's, it's one of those, it's really tough to, to nail down. We like to ask the tough questions. Yeah. Hit me with the tough questions. Yeah. And I think that is really helpful just to hear a well-rounded answer uh, and, and your thoughts on that subject. So, so thank you for that. And, and so tell us about the benefits of having a comprehensive financial plan. Yeah. I think the, the answer there is a understanding that money is a tool. How can I use this tool to better where I'm at today? What is it that you want to do? And not just the things that you think you need to tell someone in my role that you want to do. Like, what do you really want to do? Like, if you're wildly successful, what would you really want to do? What What are those aspirations or dreams, the things that sound crazy or off the wall? Like, share those too, because I think that's important because there could be a way that you could have that as well. There's not any sort of like templated, like, oh, you have to do these three things or Oh, you gotta, you have kids, you gotta pay for college. Like, no, you don't have to do those things, right? So having a, a plan is just trying to align the values that you have with the money that you're, you're blessed with to then continue to move forward, to accomplish the things that you want. It needs to be something that you want to do, not, you know, outside pressures or people's expectations of what you need to do. You talked about the top. I have a podcast. I'm, I'm pro practice ownership. I own a business. So, you know, I speak about that, but that is not the only way to be successful. You do not have to be, you know, a practice owner. You can do so many different things. And there's plenty of examples of that, I think, in the industry as well. So it's trying to get to the point where you can just decide what do you want to do or what do you and your spouse want to do or what what does life look like? What's the ideal lifestyle? And then just try to continue to have someone that can encourage you to take that tool, which is money, and then keep aligning it to that and hold you accountable. And that's in a lot of different ways. So you think about comprehensive from a financial plan, like what does comprehensive mean? Like, what does that word mean? So investing is not comprehensive. So if someone just says, hey, you should invest in A over B or you need to buy this insurance, like that's not comprehensive. So the CFP board, so the Certified Financial Planner Board, you think about taxes are important. Think about just cash flow and budgeting is important or understanding how you want to do things. Um, estate planning, again, not an attorney, but you need to get those things in place. Again, God forbid something happens. Who gets the stuff that you've accumulated? It's important. 
um, having an investment plan that aligns with what you want to do and is going to make sure you can actually get to a point where you can say works optional, I think is important versus just hoping. Um, I think a lot of people, especially practice owners, get to the point where 80, 90% of their wealth is in their practice and they have no idea what the value is. That's pretty scary. It'd be like if I have a 401k and I'm a, an associate, I never check it. And I say, hey, I'm going to retire. And hopefully when I open the 401k, I have enough money in it. That's not a, that's not a, good, that's not a good approach. So I think comprehensive is going to be dependent on what you're doing and where you're at in life. But comprehensive should be giving you direction on, on what the future can hold and what it could look like. And again, just going back to aligning your mission with your money. So specifically talking about investing, how do you typically like to build a, an investment plan for one of your clients? How does it work? So the the way that we think about investing, it needs to have, it needs to have the same pieces that that you look at from a from a medical side of things, right? So there needs to be some sort of substance or research that backs that claim, not Isaiah thinks or Isaiah feels, right? Like if you went in and said, "Well, I think this may work, and we should do it this way," your uh, your client is going to be like, "Well, I don't I don't think that sounds right. Like I'd rather take my pet somewhere that they are confident and there's there's some medical research backing this, right?" And so I would say one of the key things in trying to build an investment plan and portfolio is what does the data show you? What's the research show? And again, there's always that past performance does not guarantee future results, but the future is unknown, right? So I think you have to start with diversification. The example that I always give and like to share with people is if you're making chocolate chip cookies, you are going to have a lot of different ingredients. Those in ingredients can at times separate, taste great. Chocolate chips, I could open that bag, go sit on the couch. And if I wanted to watch a, a soccer match, I would enjoy that. But if I go and grab the baking soda and a spoon and go try to enjoy the, the soccer match, I'm not going to enjoy it, but I need that to make the cookies. And I think the vast majority of people think that stocks and bonds, that's it. That's all you can invest in. That's all it is. And I just totally disagree with that. And there's a lot of data and evidence that's out there that shows otherwise. And I think if advisors, I think are super guilty on this, but if you have research that's there, it is your job as an advisor to understand it and explain it in reasonable terms of why you're doing what you're doing and have some evidence and data behind it. And there are a lot of different ways to make it work. We have our version at Vincere of what we think, what we believe. Um, other people have their version. But at the end of the day, the truth is the future's unknown. And so I would much rather have as many independent ingredients or bets to be successful. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to build an investment plan to hit a financial plan, you want consistency right? Like you want to have consistency to where it's not predicated on, well, if the economy does good in these years, I can retire and I'll have plenty of money. Well, if the economy does poor, then I can't retire. I don't like those odds. Like I would want to take the uncertainty out as much as possible. So when I think about investing, it's trying to have as many different ingredients I can mix in to make the ride as smooth as possible. And you might have years and there's the last 10 years has been a great example. To be diversified the last 10 years has not been fun. You've looked like an idiot. You look like a moron. Like, why don't I just buy the S&P 500? Because all it does is go up to the right. And that's all I need, right? So with investing, I think it's just trying to understand that if you truly are a long-term investor, you want to tap into things that work over time and you can make adjustments. And I think that's where the knowledge and insight of, of folks that are tied into this stuff, like there are times to make changes, but sometimes, you know, you just have to ride through things and understand that you're not always going to be correct when you're diversified. You're always going to say you're sorry. I think that's part of the thing about diversification. 
you should take the concentration in the bet in your skill set and your earning and earning power. And if you do want to become an owner, again, going back to my pro practice ownership, I think that's where you concentrate and where you can build some wealth. And you try to complement that with stuff outside. So it's a long-winded answer from an investment plan, but I would say it starts there with trying to have as many different ingredients that can zigzag and and do different things at different times. So let's talk about a few more ingredients besides stocks and bonds. Would you like to bake into your recipe? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say when you think about other ingredients, so you can have stocks and bonds. Those both are are good diversifiers. And we don't have to necessarily get into every single thing. And if I say something that we, we want to get into more detail, we certainly can. Um, you can look at what is called like trend following or momentum. Um, that is a, a style of investing. And you can do that across stocks individually. You can do it across what they call like multi-asset. So maybe it's stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate. And this would be publicly traded real estate, not privately held. We'll get into that in a second. But there's plenty of different ways and styles that can add diversification. So that's one. You can look at something that would be possibly you know precious metals. So call it gold or silver. That could be something. I like Bitcoin. I know we can talk about Bitcoin. I'm an advocate. I talked about it at the Vet Financial Summit. I'll still talk about it probably at the Vet Financial Summit in 2025, 2030. But you know, I think that's a, a piece of the puzzle. And I think that veterinarians and where they're at from a financial situation, um, that can be super powerful. Look at rental real estate, whether it's um, residential, commercial property, um, the real estate from a practice ownership. I like that. I think that's the easiest real estate to buy first outside of a you know primary residence. Um, long volatility, which is way too complex to get into on this podcast is something that I really like. I think so many people think about public market investing has to be, you only make money when the market goes up. There's plenty of ways that you can diversify across different assets and allow yourself to have a positive return or be more consistent. And again, compounding the way that works and the way it works best is if you don't have a negative 35, if you don't have a negative 20, there's so much power in just looking at something that you can say, yeah, this does really well here and it's going to stink. But then in these two years when the market really struggles, it's actually fantastic. And just trying to find where someone is at with their other assets. So maybe they have a 401k. That's the vast majority of what they're doing. How do you complement that best? It's probably not owning more stocks. And I think it's important to show people like what are the other pieces of the puzzle that work? Um, I'm a big fan of farmland. Um, that's becoming more and more accessible to to an investor. So you still accredit, you have to be an accredited investor, which just means that as a single individual, you make over $200,000 or as a joint household, you make over 300. I think those rules are antiquated and stupid, candidly from, from the SEC. Um, but there are a couple different offerings that allow you to buy fractional ownership in farmland, which farmland does a great job at being completely outside of the public markets. It has good income. Um, it does well in inflationary environments. Like there's so many things that it works well. So if you blend, again, going back to the cookies, you put in those five, six, seven ingredients that do different things. It's amazing what wealth can compound to over time. Let's go back to some basics. So part of our mission with the Veterinary Financial Summit is to help clear some of the confusion that is out there. Some of our listeners know that I also have a Facebook group called Debt-Free Vets. And Isaiah, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that have come up recently on the Debt-Free Vets group. One of those is surrounding interest. And so the question that has come up and was discussed within the group is what is the difference between compound interest versus simple interest? 
Yeah. And I typically see this a lot of times from conversations with disability policies and trying to compare like disability insurance. So I'll probably use that as the example. But if you think about simple interest, it's just going to be whatever the, the rate that you're paid is going to be off of the initial principal where compounding is each time it grows, it's going to be off of that increasing base over time, over time. Visually, I think it's easier to see like the differences over like 10 or 15 or 20 years, but that would be the big difference between simple and, and compounding. So good example, and I'll just use some numbers. If you have, let's say a $5,000 benefit and you want to have it compound, that would come out in year 10 at, you know, 64 or 19, as far as how much money that would end up growing into versus if it's simple, it's going to be 6250. So there is a difference there of, you know, a cumulative $2,000 as far as what that would be like over time. So compound and simple interest are really powerful tools. I think compound interest is something that, and I'm going to space on who it was that it's the, you know, eighth wonder of the world, or was it Einstein that said that? And it works well when it's working for you. And it, it really stinks when it's working the other way. I think the easiest example of when compound interest works against you is, you know, credit card debt. I think that's an easy one that people can understand and maybe have experienced. Um, it's really hard to get out from under that where, you know, when you are able to have that work for you, it works much better. So going back to how financial advisors are paid, another question that was asked recently in the Facebook group was about how to save for the tax bomb. So, so I'm talking about the tax bill that vets and other people on income-driven repayment plans will owe at 20 to 25 years after they've paid their student debt payments for that period of time. We had a vet who was advised by a financial advisor to use actively managed funds to save up for that tax bomb. And she was asking if she should do that versus using index funds. And so can you talk about the differences between the two and uh, what are your thoughts on that question as well? Yeah. So I think the key thing that you want to first understand is what would the tax implications be over time? So if you're going to save for 20 or 25 years, typically index versus active, you're going to have more turnover. So like a change as far as what's being invested in. Index funds still change a lot too. Like Tesla just got added to the SP 500, which was all the hubbub a while back, right? The indexes still change, but they don't change as much. And an actively traded fund, not all active is created equal. I'm not anti-active, but for the most part, there's a lot of data that shows it just isn't as beneficial. Going back to what we talked about earlier, as far as having some research, there are systematic and rules-based approaches that can say how we're going to rank certain companies or certain things to say, yes, value. So buying things that are cheap is better or momentum, things that have gone up and continue to go up. And those are different ways of having what they call like factors. So I'm a believer that it doesn't have to just be indexed. But when I hear active, that's usually means discretionary, which is then saying someone thinks that they know better than the market. And that is not always something that I would say is is accurate and you're going to pay more for that typically like that person that's being active they're spending time and energy and effort to do that typically actively managed mutual funds in a taxable account are going to be about three quarters of one percent less efficient than just an, an etf or an index fund so you're going to have to outperform each year by close to one percent right just to make up for the difference between the taxes and you compound that over 20 25 years that's a big difference in what you're going to be able to have at the end of the day so I would say I don't agree with what was suggested for a variety of reasons. Again, going back to 
if this is a goal and you want to achieve your goal, let's try to remove as much of the variability that's there. I think when you introduce active, um, they might be great for 20 years, but they might be great for five and then stink for 15. And then that's going to be painful. So if you have um, something that can be tax efficient in more of an index approach, I think that would be the direction that I would go. So Isaiah, you mentioned earlier that you're an advocate for vets becoming practice owners as opposed to remaining associates. Clearly, it's not for everybody, but tell us more about your philosophy about practice ownership. The philosophy, yeah, around practice ownership is, it's the golden age of veterinary medicine right now. If you look at all the amount of money that's coming from private equity and other places, they don't come into an industry because they think this is a, a losing effort. So I think veterinarians, on average, undervalue their skill set, just point blank. So that to me shows me that there's a lot of money to be made and other people see it. And again, it's not all about money. Money's just a tool. You can use it for good things. You can use it for bad things. The CEO of NVA, um, I think it's J.B. Holdings. Uh, he's a French guy, Oliver. I think it's Jura. I can't. I can never say his name right. But he basically said we're in the first 10 years of a 50-year golden period of veterinary medicine. I tend to agree with him. And what I've seen and what typically is out there, if I have a dollar and I wanted to invest it and I wanted to invest it in the stock market, let's say I'm a long-term investor and I do a good job at just staying invested, maybe I earn eight or 9%. That's great. That compounds well over time. Well, what if I took that same dollar and I bought a practice? Not all practices are created equal. So you need to, you're taking the risk on the operation or the operational efficiency of that that clinic in that you, you're shouldering that burden on yourself or helping and hiring other partners to help you do that. The average return on those companion health clinics and equine maybe is a little less, but still they outperform the S&P 500, which is great. So if I have a dollar, I'd much rather put it in something that can return higher. Oh, and by the way, you have a lot more control over your vet clinic than you over the S&P 500. So I would much rather do that. And when you're an owner, you have a lot of tax benefits. So you can write things off. You can make yourself more efficient from that standpoint. Whereas an associate, sure, you can save into your 401k. Maybe you put some money in the HSA, but you don't have as many kind of tax shelter options or deferrals or, or ways to get creative on how you recognize income. V, VMG Group, they put out, I think this might be a 2018 statistic, but it was companion health, 16% as far as a return. Now, again, everyone's not there. Um, I've seen practices that have, uh, and when I say 16%, let me, let me back up and clarify that. So this is a 16% earnings after compensation. So after paying yourself a good wage for what you do from a from a veterinarian perspective, as an owner, you would get 16% of the, the, the revenue coming off of that business. So again, think of it as an investment that you're getting 16% off of. That's much better than the S&P. I've seen practices that maybe they're doing something slightly different, whether it's ER or urgent care and are highly profitable, like triple that. So there are practices out there that are very wildly profitable. There are practices out there that struggle and are sub 10 and that's normal and it's out there too. So it's not like this is a sure thing, but there are a lot of professionals out there that can help. And even if you are paying for those other people, you have a margin for error in the amount of income that comes back to you. Oh, by the way, you don't have to wait till you're 60 to sell your veterinary clinic. I've had conversations, not a client, but had someone that works in the space and they there was a 38-year-old veterinarian that sold their clinic for just over $10 million at 38. That's pretty impressive. Now, granted, I'm sure he hustled and busted his hump to get there and it was not easy and there were struggles along the way, but that kind of wealth could never be made as an associate. Never, not in a million years. 
So that's why I'm a, an advocate because there is so much money coming in the space. If you run a clinic well, you don't have to work forever. Getting to the part where it's work optional. And if you love being a veterinarian, you want to work till 70, great, do it, but you don't have to. And I just think there's a lot of misinformation in people that are encouraging going the associate route because of student loans. When in reality, if you can raise your income, you can pay back your student loans quicker. That's, I guess, my thoughts on practice ownership, but it's, there, there's a lot more to it. And again, I know I can make it sound rosy and great and it's perfect. It's hard. It's messy. It's not going to be easy, but I think there's a big opportunity there for those that, that have that curiosity. So in your financial career, what have you noticed are self-limiting beliefs that keep people from building wealth and specifically veterinarians? I think, and this is going to be probably a little bit different than, than maybe some of the other ones. I just think this student loan thing, so many people get so caught up on student loans. You don't have to pay them back quickly. You can, and it might make sense. But I think just this overhang of, I have this debt, oh, I can't do anything with it. And I just graduated. I talked to someone that had graduated six months and she had a lot of student loan debt and she kind of felt like, well, I don't have any chance. Like life is over from the, sta the standpoint of ever doing anything with it because I have so much debt. That's not the case. And there are opportunities for you to get out from under that. A little bit of savings can go a long way. I think if you're thoughtful around how you do it and try to understand what the options are out there, you're not going to be able to, you know, work and just put your money into, you know, your your bank account. Like you earn nothing on that money. And the way, unfortunately, that our country has been structured with the amount of creation of new money and other things, like your dollar continues to lose purchasing power. So you have to go find somewhere to put it into, and it's not there. So you just have to think about ways where you can get a higher rate of return. And that's again kind of going back to the practice ownership piece. But I just think so many people undervalue their skill set. I've had so many people tell me in the last couple months that they are looking for the exact same associate veterinarian because they can't find them, they can't find them, they can't find them. Well, to me, that sounds like you, if you're an associate veterinarian, you're in a pretty good spot to negotiate some things if you want to go work somewhere. If I'm an owner, that, that makes me a little bit nervous. But if I'm an associate, that gives you a lot more leverage in negotiating that. And if you haven't got a raise or are making less than what is coming out from AVMA statistics or other things, you've been in a practice for five or six or seven years, you deserve a raise. You should go ask for that. There's no shame in that. You deserve to be compensated for the work that you do, especially if you have a lot of student loan debt and you feel like you're behind. So I don't know if there's like one self-limiting belief. I just, I go back to the thing. I just think veterinarians undervalue how talented they are and what their worth is from an economic standpoint of what the skill set is, because this whole private equity consolidator thing doesn't work without the veterinarian. Like all this extra, you know, growth of money and all this stuff that's out there, the golden age of veterinary medicine doesn't happen without veterinarians. It just doesn't. So you are extremely valuable in making that happen. So I would just make sure that you are either going out and trying to build that for yourself versus building someone else's wealth or you're getting compensated well for it. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, Isaiah. We're definitely seeing vets who don't realize how many options they have. And so a lot of the comments that you made, I, I think are helpful to get vets to start to think about all of the options that they have, both for their careers and then also for their finances as well. So that brings us to our last question. Isaiah, what is your best advice for our listeners? I think be curious and try to network and understand what the opportunities are. I kind of build off of what you just said. Um, there are more opportunities out there than, than what you think. And if I was to go back to practice ownership, I know some of the people 
listening and how they would push back is, well, how am I supposed to be a practice owner? Because corporate consolidators are paying way more than I can ever afford to pay. And they're 100% correct. So you need to go where consolidators are not going. Where are they not going? They're, they're not going to a, a more of a rural practice. Maybe it's a single doctor office, something that's smaller. Go roll up a couple of those and then turn around and sell them. If you wanted to be entrepreneurial, and I think that's probably the big difference is most veterinarians don't have the drive to want to be owners. They want to, they want to do medicine. But if you can find a partner or you can find someone that can help you do that, that to me is the, the really good opportunity today is looking out at an older veterinarian that maybe is more rural or outside of, you know, the, you know, the, the shining practice that's down the street or the place that you've worked at that maybe is super well run. You might have to go to a practice that has some warts on it and go clean up some things. And that's hard work, but you'll be compensated for that. And I just really, really think so many people have an opportunity for practice ownership if they have that desire. If you don't, that's completely okay. There's plenty of other ways to build wealth. I think you just have to start to look outside of the norm. It's going to be hard for you to go in and be an associate and just save in your 401k and feel like you have enough at the end of the day. You're going to have to be creative and look outside of kind of what traditional you know, blogs or advice is to, to grow that. That's kind of where I'm at. And I know um, there's a lot of other ways for, for them to, to build that wealth. But yeah, it might not be just strictly investing in what your, your 401k gives you. So when our colleagues are ready to build wealth, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So they can go to Vincere Wealth Management and there's a schedule a call button in the top right. You can go there. Um, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you want to hear more about thoughts on various different things, obviously check out the the podcast, share thoughts on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm a lot of different places. I try to share my thoughts and be very candid and open. Hopefully that came through in this conversation as well. But yeah, I'm also, I love talking to veterinarians. I think there's been a number of veterinarians I've talked to that, hey, it wasn't the right fit. They weren't looking for something that I was doing, but hopefully I can connect them with what they are looking for. So never hesitate to reach out. I'm happy to to chat and share thoughts and, and make sure that you're kind of on the road to where you're trying to go. And that may mean we work together in five or 10 years and that's okay too. I'm not going anywhere. Great. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a strong point you finished with. Working with a financial planner is not a cookie cutter kind of thing. Uh, there's many ways to do it uh, based on each veterinary professional, based on each individual financial planner. And it's, it's, it's a recipe. It's something that gets uh, put together over time. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was uh, definitely different to be on the other side. Thanks, Isaiah. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified of new episodes. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.